Hey, everybody. This is Cole Fakes, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I'm here with Terry Fakes, and this is a book that we've saved up for a while. We're in the kind of closing stretch of our book overviews. And uh, before we get going into Galatians like we usually do, I wanted to offer a couple of remarks of setup for why we've waited so long on the book of Galatians. Yeah, apparently it's uh, it's a book you said you got uh, spoiled on and kind of soured on during your MDiv. Yes. Yeah, so m- many of you know that uh, I think the end of Joshua is the most boring part of the Bible, all inspired. I don't say that, you know, to, to deprecate God's word. In fact, if you go back and listen to our podcast about Joshua, there's some really fascinating things about it. But I think it's probably the hardest part of the Old Testament to read through in a Bible reading plan. Galatians, on the flip side, I think is the most difficult book, most difficult letter, especially in the New Testament. And one of the reasons for that is because when I was doing my MDiv, uh, one of the big things that was kind of going on in the scholarly world was is called the new perspective on Paul, which now is not new anymore. It's the old perspective, but not the old, old perspective. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there's kind of a little tongue in cheek that the new perspective think that they're arguing about the perspective before the Reformation. So it truly is the old perspective. And uh Anyway, there's a lot of debates about Paul and the law. What is the role of the law? What did the what did the Jews in the Second Temple period actually believe about the law? And uh, the only reason I mention that is not to get into the specific, specifics of that debate, but just to say if there's one book in the New Testament that really deals with this issue of what the Jews believed, what they were doing uh, in their engagement with Christians, and what role the law plays, it's Galatians. Well, just for clarity, for those that aren't uh, haven't read as much about the quote new perspective in Paul, how would you characterize it broadly speaking? What is the thrust of the quote new look at Paul and Paul's writings? So, one of the things about the new perspective is, is it is a little bit hard to define. So, let me give a couple of broad contours. So, the new perspective effectively started with E.P. Sanders. Uh, book on Palestinian Judaism, Second Temple Judaism. And one of the things that he argued was Judaism in this period was not legalistic. So they were not saying salvation is works-based. You must do certain things in order to be saved. What he advanced was something called covenant gnomism, which means the works or certain parts of the works, as the new perspective came to uh, advocate, are actually what keep you in the covenant. So you're in the covenant by virtue of being a child of God, by virtue of being a Jew. And then following the law is the way that you stay in the covenant. Doing the sacrifices, all of that is the way that you stay in the covenant. So one of the things that's difficult is if you've based your reading of Paul around a vision of Judaism that is essentially legalistic, and now Paul is advancing salvation by grace through faith, What E.P. Sanders did was kind of undercut that and say, that's actually not what the Jews believed at the time. So Paul cannot be reacting against that. So what is it that Paul is reacting against? And one of the most famous parts of this strain of the new perspective is the idea that Paul really didn't convert to something totally different. He just reformed his understanding of Judaism with the Messiah. So right. he, he some of the new perspective people believe that Paul actually kept the law. And there are texts that make you think that he was keeping certain portions of the law, right. um, but that the law basically applied to Jews and it continued that way as Christians. And then uh, Gentiles, as we're going to see in the book of Galatians, don't have to keep the law. 
And the way the new perspective nuances this is that it's not that they don't keep the law. It's that they don't keep the Jewish boundary markers of circumcision and dietary laws that Paul mentions as works of the law. So those works of the law are not the thing that saved Gentiles. And, and uh, so that's one strain. Look, I'll mention one more. And again, this is, you, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I know somebody in the new perspective and they don't think that. And that's part of the trouble with the new perspective is there's a lot of different positions on this. The other thing is how, what faith are we talking about when we talk about salvation? So one of the classic debates is uh, when you have the phrase, you're saved by faith, whose faith are you talking about? Right. And the phrase, the faith of Jesus Christ can also mean faith in Jesus Christ. So is it our faith in Jesus or is it the faith or the faithfulness of Jesus that is the foundation of the new covenant? And uh, I actually don't think this one splits quite as starkly as some of the other issues. I, I think there is there are probably places in the New Testament where you can find both of these things. Jesus was faithful. It was his faithfulness to God that is the foundation of uh, his saving work on the cross. And then our faith in him, I think, is an undeniable point that the New Testament teaches that mm-hmm. unites us to him and reconciles us to God. So I do think that both of those things can be true. There are some exegetical arguments in certain verses that people want to parse out. Okay, is this a subjective genitive or is this an objective genitive? Meaning, is this right. is this faith the subject or the object? Is it Christ's faith or our faith in him that we're talking about here? So many people are thinking, well, okay, th- this was five minutes of my life. I can't get back. What, what difference does this make uh, to reading the book of Galatians? Well, the key thing for most people when you read the book of Galatians is, is Paul talking about the whole law? Or is he just talking about markers, identity markers, like circumcision and right. food laws when he talks about works of the law? And that it'll become obvious later in the podcast as we discuss this, why that's important. But that's kind of the key thing I would set up to say there's a big dispute over this in some of the scholarly literature. And it does make some difference in the way we think about this, the way we think about justification. Is justification really penal substitutionary atonement, Christ in our place? Or is it more of a Christus victor? He triumphed over sin and we get to be a part of it. Kind of look at right. justification. Yeah, as well as you can tell from your explanation, it's a little bit technical, but it does make a difference because it is, uh, to some extent, because it is a it is a perspective shift. And that's why it drew so many people into it. And so if you're familiar with Douglas Moo just wrote uh, kind of his opus on Paul and his theology, of course, N.T. Wright has popularized this. Uh, you, you've attracted a lot of talent into relooking at Paul's letters. So it's, it's good to kind of know what, what are the contours of that, that Pauline, new Pauline perspective. But you're right, Genesis is ground, or Genesis, Galatians, excuse me, is ground zero for this. And I can see why you're burned out. I'm going to take a more simplistic view of this, however, and say that there are still a lot to be taken uh, from just the point of view of law and grace and the idea of what exactly is Paul talking about when you know when he's contrasting the law. And maybe the first way to start is the context. This letter is a little enigmatic because uh, there's a wide variety of opinions on when this was written and precisely to whom it was written. So what are your how would you characterize the scholarly uh, opinion between whether this was written really early? 
like 48 or 49 AD, or much later in Paul's um, ministry, maybe 10 or 12 years later than that. What's so, the contours of that? Let me give a little roadmap here. There's there's two big factors that make Galatians a tricky letter. One is what I've just talked about, which is primarily theological and exegetical. Mm-hmm. The second area is what we're getting into now. Whenever we do these overviews, especially in the New Testament, we always talk about what's the situation behind when this letter was written. Who wrote it? Why'd they write it? Where were, where were they when they wrote it? Who did they write it to? Establishing that in the book of Galatians, in the letter of Galatians, is as tricky as any letter in the New Testament in terms of the destination and the timing. And here's why. It's to the church uh, at Galatia, but we really aren't sure which Galatia Paul is talking about. And so at the beginning of this letter, you'll notice the intro to Galatians is a little bit different than some of the others. Most people think it's because Paul was so riled up about what he wanted to say to them that he Mm -hmm. didn't introduce the letter the same way he usually does. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Um, Galatia, the problem is Galatia can either be a region on the one hand, or it can be a province on the other hand, and those two don't line up exactly. So these areas, uh, the region of Galatia is north of what we would consider modern day Turkey and just west of there. The southern, southern Galatia would be the province of Galatia. And this, we actually see Paul going there in Acts chapter 16. It's where Lystra, Iconium, Derby, this is the first missionary journey. So depending on where you think this is referring to, will give you a pretty good sense about when, when the letter was written. So if it's in, if it's to the Northern Galatians, uh, this would have been uh, a region after the Romans reorganized uh, the southern province of Galatia, which is shortly after Paul's writing. So some of the trouble here is are we using official Roman terms or are we just mm-hmm. using colloquial terms about where this is? And if it's the northern Galatian region, we actually don't know exactly when Paul would have been there early mm-hmm. in his ministry. So chances are he's writing it sometime after 51 to 52 or even 54 to 57. For people that take the Northern Galatian theory, they usually think that Paul's writing from Rome. And so that could be even later than that. Uh, For the Southern Galatian hypothesis, this corresponds with Paul's missionary work mentioned in Acts. And one of the reasons this is persuasive is because it does seem like Paul not only knows the church in Galatia, but he has preached there. He has been there. He's planted these churches. And so if you want to account for Paul having gone to a place, planted churches that look like these churches, it sure seems like that first missionary journey in the province of Galatia would be the place. Well, that happens pretty early. That's like 48, 49. So it's possible that if he writes this just after that, this is the earliest book of the New Testament. This is the earliest letter of Paul's that we have. Whereas if it's Northern Galatia, it's probably around the same time as um, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and Ephesians, right. Colossians, some of these other letters. So the other the other thing that is a, a likely nod to the Southern Galatian hypothesis would be Paul typically uses provincial titles in his letters. So usually when he's referring to places, he's using the province names. If this is really the provincial name that he's referring to, then it's got to be these churches in the south. Again, the chapters 
16, 15, 16, 17 in Acts, he is in mm-hmm. this region. And that would explain when he planted these churches, how he knows these people, and uh, why he is so worked up about the fact that they're believing a false gospel. Yeah, exactly. And it, that's very interesting. It doesn't change the content, but it is interesting because you could be reading the very first letter of the New Testament uh, when you read Galatians. And obviously that's of interest to scholars because they want to trace, is there an evolution in Paul's theology or not? I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. I don't find any inconsistencies between Galatians and the other letters, but it is interesting to note that. But Apparently, and you can reason backwards from this letter, Cole, because Paul's language in this is he is agitated when he writes this. He is ticked off. I think he knows these people because you would not say some of these things to strangers. <laughs> I mean, it's it's blunt. But apparently what has happened is that Paul has gone through this area of preaching, uh, salvation by grace through faith, not through works of the law. And of course, the Jewish people who became Christians and who still revere the law are accusing Paul saying, hey, you're you're telling people that to just forget the law. And we're having a hard time with that. That was God's tool for you know the Jews for 1400 years. And so apparently some missionaries, some Jewish Christians who've now become Christian, go along behind Paul and start preaching to correct what Paul is saying. And you can gather from this letter that what they are saying is, hey, yes, Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross, but guys, you've got to clean up your act. You need to be circumcised because that's one of the signs of being part of the family of God. You've got to keep the food laws because that's one of the markers of being one of God's people. And so Paul is reacting very strongly against apparently that preaching coming along behind him. And Apparently, the Galatians, who are largely Gentiles, of course, are apparently believing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of this has to do with the background of what happens in the first two chapters of Galatians. So we get right off the bat a warning from Paul or really a critique from Paul in verse six. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So like you said, this isn't just an intramural dispute. Paul really considers what you're talking about, adding things that people need to do to become a Christian, a different gospel, a false gospel. And so that's why he's so worked up about this, is this is not just Paul has a few disagreements with some of the other Christians. He really believes that this church is on the verge of being compromised into not being a church anymore, preaching a false gospel. And the way that he starts to explain this gives us one of the longer autobiographical pieces in Paul's letters. So starting in in chapter 1, verse 11, and going all the way to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul gives uh, himself as an example, and he recounts the early days of becoming a Christian. This is really interesting reading because we don't Mm -hmm. even have some of this information from the book of Acts. It's the only place where we know some of the things that happened to Paul at the very beginning. And what he's trying to prove in this section is his gospel and the people in Jerusalem, uh, the apostles that are in Jerusalem, uh, Peter and by implication, John, but also James, who's the brother of Christ, who is a pillar Mm -hmm. of the New Testament church, is the same gospel. So while these these kind of semi-Jewish 
people have come in and are teaching what he thinks is a false gospel. He's also making sure that people know this is really not even the same as what they're teaching in Jerusalem. So they claim to be Jewish or Jewish Christians, but they're not the same as James and Peter and John and those guys, because when I was converted, I went there and then I went out and worked and did ministry. And then I came back and every time I checked, we were preaching the same gospel that they got the right Right. hand of fellowship. Now he does talk about rebuking Peter, which we'll get to in a minute which is another famous part of this dialogue. But the reason he gives this story about his life is to show there's a continuity between Jesus' disciples' gospel and his gospel, and that this is the same. And that if you add anything to the gospel, if you add anything to trusting in Christ through faith, then you have a false gospel. So if you make circumcision a requirement for becoming a Christian, that's a false gospel. Or if you make Jewish dietary laws a requirement for becoming a Christian, that's a false gospel. And so uh, Paul wants to show that whether you were Jewish, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're part of the Jerusalem church or the Galatian church, there is one gospel. We are saved by God's grace through faith, and you can't add anything to that. And so the simple message of Galatians is that any any quote-unquote gospel, which Paul says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and distorting the gospel, which is what he means by another gospel. Any other gospel uh, is a false gospel beyond the simple truth of trusting in Christ through faith. We cannot do anything to earn salvation, no matter if it's works of the law or barriers that we put up for people now to come to church and be church members. It is only by grace through faith. So that's kind of the overarching concern of this false gospel. Um, and, and it's and it's there's more than that in this letter, but it's not less than that. That's Paul's fundamental right. commitment. Right. And you see the early church struggling amongst those who come out of the Jewish faith and the covenant. Actually, not the Jewish faith. I'd rather say come out of the covenant that Christ has completed and into the new covenant. This is a real challenge for them. And you uh, alluded to Peter's behavior in chapter 2, verse 11. Antioch is uh, where there were a lot of Gentile Christians, and it reads this. But when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, meaning some of the probably think Pharisees who become Christians, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What does he mean by circumcision party? These are Jewish Christians who say anybody that wants to be a Christian has to effectively become a Jew first, has to enter into the markers of the old covenant to inherit the new covenant. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to him before everyone, if you a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what he's saying is, you know, I I stood up for the truth here and even to, to Peter. Yeah, so the charge against Peter here is basically hypocrisy. Right. So if if you have been eating with these people, but then when the Jews show up, you pull back like you're not, because if you remember in Acts chapter 10, the big issue for Peter there was what to eat. But another big issue for the Jews was who to eat with. So right. Jews didn't really eat with Gentiles because Gentiles would be unclean. They're eating unclean things. Peter receives a vision Everything that God has made is clean. Of course, this echoes what Jesus says. It's not what goes in your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. 
And uh, this principle is really hard for the Jews to accept at first because their whole life they've been trained to not eat or touch or surround themselves with things that are unclean. So Peter is really trying to do the right thing. He's eating with Gentiles. And then some Jews show up from the circumcision party and he acts like, oh, I wasn't eating with these people. And Paul, right. Paul's charge is not that Peter believes the wrong thing. It's that Peter right. essentially had a failure of nerve and he is calling him out for the hypocrisy of, okay, if you're going to live like a Gentile, how can you require the Gentiles to live like Jews uh, right. with this circumcision stuff? That's, that's, that doesn't make any sense. It's sort, you know sort it. of a Peter, you know, better than this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a matter, some, some people I've, I've seen comment on this passage by saying that he was rebuking Peter for a false gospel. That's actually not correct. What he's rebuking Peter for is believing right. the right thing and actually contradicting his own beliefs by bowing to the this circumcision party's pressure when they show up. Yeah. But then he turns his attention back to the Galatians because he started in chapter one, oh, foolish Galatians, which really is kind of in your face. Chapter three, he turns his attention back and he says, oh, foolish Galatians. And J.B. Phillips translation is pretty good. He goes, my dear idiots, who <laughs> has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. Let me just ask you one thing. Did you receive the spirit? by works of the law or by hearing the faith? And then a rhetorical question, are you that foolish? I mean, he is really angry here. He is, it's, I would, I read this in this way. He, this is like, you have a child who's getting ready to commit spiritual suicide. You're half afraid and concerned and you're half angry that mm -hmm. this has even happened. I mean, that's kind of how I read his tone of, love and concern and at the same time anger that how could you have how could you have believed this right yeah his argument there is a mix of this anger as well as compassion he really wants the galatian church to get this figured out he's he's mm -hmm. very mad at the false teachers he's compassionate towards the galatian church because he doesn't want them to believe something that's wrong and there's an interesting discussion as to whether or not he succeeded in Galatia. Right. Uh, I had a seminary professor who thought that maybe he had lost this church doctrinally because when he starts to mention the collection late in later letters, he doesn't mention the churches in Galatia. Maybe by mm -hmm. implication, he wasn't on good terms with them. We don't really know what happened here, but, but he does see this as kind of a spiritual life and death situation. And the, the disagreement that they're having is one that actually is still really important for us today. This is not just a dispute uh, that died out in the first century. The, these are the fundamental principles of what makes something a, the true or a false gospel. And so I'll take you back just one sentence before the passage you just quoted, because it supports what you're just explaining from chapter three, the end of chapter two has a really famous verse in it. Galatians two 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life. I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith, by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We usually quote that out of context, but listen to the next verse. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is really the crux of what he's saying you know, when he says, oh, foolish Galatians, it's if if we take what you're saying to be true, that you actually have to get in and stay in this covenant by works of the law, then 
Christ died for no purpose because you couldn't have that gospel without Christ. Right. So he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Uh, and by that, I mean, I'm not counting on my righteousness coming from works of the law. I'm counting on my righteousness coming from faith. And most of our uh, most of our listeners who have read through Romans recently or have listened to our Romans episode will notice that there are some real similarities between the argument that Paul makes in Romans, especially in chapter mm-hmm. four and right. in Galatians. In fact, Romans and Galatians have similar aspects. Now, the, the, the circumstances are very different. The two churches are very different. But this interchange between what is the role of the law and what is the role of faith and grace and the Holy Spirit really figure prominently in both letters. And this is where the situation is really similar. He says, Abraham is the picture for us of what it means to be saved by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this happened hundreds of years before the law. So Paul's saying, how can you have salvation through the law if we have Abraham before the law? The covenant with Abraham is before the law. And he Mm -hmm. had his faith credited to him as righteousness. That must be the way it works all the way through. Right. Well, that, that brings up an interesting question. And that is, Paul is saying the salvation doesn't come through the law. But what then is the use of the law? What then is the proper role of the law? Because Paul's not saying, gee, the law was a bad idea and it was never, never of any use. He's not saying that. So what then is the legitimate view of the law? Yeah, this is one of the most interesting things in the book of Galatians is, okay, so if we're not saved through the law, why did God send the law in the first place? Was the law just a bad idea? Was it just a failed attempt to get people to be saved. And Paul's saying, no, salvation never came through the law. The law actually has a different purpose. So if you look at chapter two, verse 19, that verse right before Galatians 2.20, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. All through Galatians, what you see is the point of the law is effectively to show us what sin is, to convict us of our need for a savior, to show us that we stand condemned before a holy, holy God, and then later on in Galatians to show us what a holy life looks like. So it's God hasn't actually changed his mind on what it means to be good, and what it means to be evil, or what it means to be righteous and unrighteous. But the things that we see in the law show us the principles of how God has always viewed human activity. And what I always think is helpful on this topic is to go back to Luther, Martin Luther's catechism. And in the catechism, he has three uses of the law. And this is just a helpful way to start to conceive of the argument that Paul's making in Galatians. What is the law for? So if you're in a Bible reading plan, or if you're just studying passages of scripture in the Old Testament, how should we now be appraising and thinking about the law? The first one is uh, kind of the contemporary use of the law when it was given, which is to restrain and control sinful behavior. So the law functioned in a purpose then to guide a whole society of people in how to live together. So one of the purposes of the law then for Israel was it would create the kind of society that would restrain sin. And if we were in a society that had principles of the law in our laws, which we do have a lot of our laws that reflect these same principles, 
the purpose is the same. They restrain people from doing the wrong things because there's consequences, earthly consequences for disobeying mm-hmm. the law. The second one is to accuse us and show us our sins. So this is the law as a mirror. When you look at right. the law, you immediately realize that you violated God's commands, whether that's the Ten Commandments or purity laws or whatever they are. We, we see immediately that we could never measure up to God's standards. And then third, to show Christians what we should and shouldn't do for a life that pleases God. So we're going to talk later about life in the spirit. And Paul says in a couple of different places that if you walk by the spirit, you have fulfilled the law because right. the law of love, which is loving God of their whole heart and loving our neighbor as ourself is what the law is based on. And that is what the Christian life looks like now. So it's not, and we've talked about this on another podcast. It's not that we follow the 10 commandments now because we are under the 10 commandments as law. We follow the 10 commandments almost coincidentally now, not because they're the 10 commandments, but because they're a description of what a life that pleases God looks like. So the third use of the law is probably the most essential for Christians, which is it gives us a sense of the kinds of things God requires for a holy life. And since we are trying to live holy lives by the spirit, these are the kinds of things that we should be doing and not doing. Yeah. One of the ways I highlight that is that, um, without, and this is just true for us as much as it was for them, without a conviction or a recognition of my sin, my alienation from God, then as Paul says, the crucifixion of Christ, resurrection of Christ is a solution that's running around looking for a problem to solve. Because if you could be righteous through the law, you don't actually have a problem, but the law as a way of convicting me of sin and showing me the life that I'm not living. Now, all of a sudden, the cross of Christ becomes crucially important and the grace of God becomes indispensable to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to mention one other point here on this topic, and this is where I think the new perspective has actually been helpful in reminding us some of the things that Paul says and making sure that we don't just mirror read. So when you mirror reading is when you take something that Paul says, and we don't have the other half. So we don't know what the teachers in Galatia were saying. But what we sometimes do is just take what Paul says and assign the exact opposite to these teachers in Galatia and think that that's what they said. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that the new perspective has been good about is to show us that from the other literature we have from this period, we can sketch some of the things that the Jews of this period believed. And we can be reminded of the fact that uh, they didn't quite believe that you just earn God's favor by doing the law and thus you were perfectly reconciled to God like you would be through Jesus, so you don't need Jesus. What Paul's arguing here is the true point of the law is actually prevalent. It's not the only opinion, obviously, but it is prevalent in certain Jewish readings of the law in the same way, that they are members of the covenant and they do these things, number one, to stay in the covenant, but number two, to, to effectively put off and stay the wrath of God. That's what the sacrificial system is for, not to be saved by these sacrifices. And Paul makes this clear with something that's important for Christians to remember in chapter three. He says, know then, this is in verse seven, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is important to remember. The goal of what Christ did is to fulfill the covenant with Abraham. 
The mm-hmm. covenant with Moses in the, the, the law is inside the covenant with Abraham. And so what Jesus does is he fulfills the covenant to Abraham that through him, all the nations are blessed. And we are members of that covenant in Christ. So we are part of the fulfillment and we are part of the result. So we're part of the fulfillment in that when we take on Christ's righteousness, when we're with him, when we're united with him in faith, we also fulfill the promise to Abraham and we do bless the nations. But the flip side, what Paul's pointing out here is because Christ did fulfill this and because we have faith in him, we are blessed with the promise of Abraham. We are part of the nations that will be blessed through him. And so the goal for us is not just uh, for a new sacrifice, you know, in place of animals. Now we have Jesus. That's that's true. But to be heirs of what God promised Abraham, which is now given and fulfilled in Christ. Exactly. And he goes on through chapter. uh, There's some really interesting arguments that he's making that will make sense in light of what you just said as you go through chapter four. And then chapter five, he kind of concludes and he says, chapter five, verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, which I think is not just relevant to them going back under the law, but relevant to us as well is don't go back into slavery. And verse two says this, look, I'm Paul. I'm saying to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. So he he's, he's basically saying you've been set free. Why would you go back and try to do something that you are not able to do on your own? And he talks about you're severed from Christ if you want to be justified by the law. You're fallen from grace if you put your reliance again back on the old covenant. So that's a pretty strong language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the more incendiary things that Paul says in any of his letters is in chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's the kind of thing that would get the Jewish faction to want to kill you. Right. Exactly. And he has lost uh, no love for the Jewish faction. Uh, He goes down a little further. Verse 11, he says, or actually verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the people who are troubling you will bear the penalty. But if I brothers still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? And he says, I actually wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, meaning let's not just do circumcision. Uh, you know, I, I I wish they would just completely cut themselves off. So I mean, he's, he has a lot of hostility here. He, he feels like this is like how you might feel toward the drug dealer who's dealing drugs to your elementary school kid on the playground. You know, you're you're yeah, angry. there's no he's love angry. lost here. Yeah, I think this is one of the more surprising things that Paul says in his letters. It's always uh, kind of an interesting thing when you come across this and you say, wow, Paul said I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow, you wouldn't think that that's in the Bible. Uh, but it, but there is a deeper lesson in this. It's that they thought that doing things of the flesh would make you right with God. And so Paul, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, is saying, okay, well, if it's if it's really these works of the flesh, if it's doing something to your flesh that counts, then why stop there? Right. You know, why stop with right. circumcision? And. Right. Uh, that, that that's a powerful point in and of itself, but it's also pretty incendiary. <laughs> Indeed. 
Well, the, then you had already talked about the idea. He kind of turns here in chapter five and six, starting in maybe verse 16 or so. And he starts talking about, but I say, walk by the spirit. And you talked about that idea of living by the spirit and you won't gratify the pleasures of the flesh. And he, and then he contrasts the works of the flesh. And then that famous passage in chapter five, verse 22 with the fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so he's really, he turns from the, the criticism of what's being preached to, I would say, painting the picture of what it looks like to walk in the spirit. Yeah. This second half of Galatians chapter five and chapter six, especially is one of the best passages in Paul's letters to go to for what the Christian life looks like walking by the spirit, being freed from thinking that doing things will earn favor with God actually frees you to live according to how God designed you to live. And so one of the things you see in Romans chapter six and here is the response to the preaching of the gospel is always, you mean people can just do whatever they want, but what if they do the wrong things? That's a, that's a, that is a response that Paul anticipates in both places where he says, it's, it's not that you can't do anything because now you are free, no condemnation, you are free. But if you're really united with Christ by the spirit, you will do things that walk according to the spirit. You will live in such a way that glorifies God. And this is true for every Christian is it's not that we immediately stop sinning when we become Christians and we are perfect forever, but it's that the trajectory of our life, if we are walking by the spirit will be saying no to sin and yes to the things of God. And so what you're doing is you're exchanging these works of the flesh, which are are listed in uh, chapter five, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom. Because if you are united to Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, these are the things that are going to start to appear in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So this is the pattern of what the Christian life looks like. Uh, The Spirit bears fruit in our life. We walk in such a way that we actually do start abiding by the principles of the law, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Before we wrap up here, there's a couple of passages in chapter six that I think are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, he basically starts by giving some practical advice. Uh, if anybody is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is one of the really important passages for church discipline, which gets kind of a bad rap, but mm-hmm. uh, who wouldn't want to be restored uh, along these lines? Bearing one another's burdens, testing each other's work. Uh, There's some really practical stuff in here. Sowing by the Spirit, reaping by the Spirit. And then when we turn in verse 11, we get uh, this end note that we get a lot in Paul's letters that there's always some really fascinating stuff in here, but it's easy to skip over. Verse 11 is significant. This one is probably significant. In verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. This is kind of odd to read. Uh, because we're not seeing his own hand. We don't have the original manuscript. But this is a verse that has led people to think that Paul had failing eyesight. And there are Uh several reasons for this. He reroutes his trip uh, around here to even be at these churches. And one of the reasons people think is because he was having eye problems. And there are a couple of places that have eye ointment 
in this area. Yeah. Uh, you actually see this again in the book of Revelation. Uh, you see a couple of these towns, uh, Laodicea being one of them, that were uh-huh. known for making certain ointments and creams and medical supplies. The other thing is a lot of people have taken this verse and used it to interpret Paul's thorn in the flesh. So his thorn in the flesh that he begged God to remove the messenger of Satan may have been poor eyesight. And that was just kind of a physical malady that he wanted to be healed from. We've talked about that before. I don't read that passage that way, but this is maybe an indicator that he did have failing eyesight. It's an interesting little hint. Now, the idea of him signing the letters, now we, we've talked before about how Paul dictated these letters and didn't actually write them down, but uh, it, it's not uncommon for him to sign them. For example, in 2 Thessalonians, the last uh, two verses say this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. This is how I write. So it was kind of an authenticating type of thing. The interesting thing in Galatians is not only is he authenticating it, but he talks about see with what large letters I write. And so that's one of his distinctives. And it does make you wonder if that thorn in the flesh wasn't failing eyesight. Yeah, I tend to read this in concert with another verse at the end of this letter, which is verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And uh, I'll let you take a shot at what he means here. I take it essentially to remind us, especially if this is in the Southern Galatian province, Uh if you remember, he gets dragged out of a couple of these towns, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, one of which he gets dragged out and left for dead after being stoned. And he effectively gets raised from the dead. I mean, he's not quite dead, but he gets raised essentially from death. They thought he was dead. and They left him for dead. Yeah, And uh, he goes back and preaches the gospel. So people are going to remember, especially if this is the same place, he bears, he bears on his body the marks of, of Jesus, in, meaning he has been persecuted for this. And so my point is, if all of that stuff happened, if you remember in 2 Corinthians where he rattles off all the stuff that's happened to him, he's been beaten yeah. with rods, he's received the 40 lashes three times, he's been shipwrecked, yeah. he's been stoned, left for dead. You think eyesight is the first of his problems? I mean, he had to be a really heinous-looking person. The scars that he had on his back would have been just gruesome to look at. He probably couldn't stand up straight because of the scar tissue that he had. I mean, if you're stoned, you basically thrown on the ground and people pelt you until they think you're dead, it definitely would be likely that you have poor eyesight. You probably have poor everything else at that point, too. Well, you've too. got to have had a concussion. I mean, if you just think that through for a second, he just skips right over it, you know? And just moves on because it's not about him, it's about Christ. But if you think about that, that had to be life-altering injuries, the things that happened to him. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not surprised either. But I will tell you this, I agree completely with what you said, but here's how I read verse 17. It says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body, I believe the Greek word is stigmata, isn't it? Stigmata of Jesus. I, here's how I would paraphrase it. Don't let anybody there doubt my authority or my sincerity. You can look at my body and see how sincerely I follow Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a challenge, like see how many stripes, how many times the guys that are preaching to you have been beaten. And let's talk about who's sincere and who actually has put their life on the line for the gospel. I do think Mm -hmm. it's, it's not bragging. It's sort of a, hey, if you want to talk about sincerity, 
you can look at my body and tell how severe, how sincere I am. Right. I think that's exactly right. He's, he's showing these people talk a big game. Like they're the ones that are really committed because they're circumcising people. He's like, I'll show you something a lot worse than circumcision. He's like, look yeah. at the, look at the marks on my body, which I've sustained mostly from the Jews at this point in his ministry career uh, yes. for the cause of Christ. And that's why he said earlier, if I were still preaching circumcision, I would not be persecuted. So he's he's basically calling into question their motives that he's saying, I think you know my motives. I think you've seen my sincerity. Right. Well, what's your final takeaway? There's a, obviously this one is a little more technical than some of our other ones. There are some really interesting and kind of there's some minutia that we can get into on these disputes. But really, this is a letter just like the others that's been written for churches then and Christians now to know what we need to do to follow Christ and live a Christian life. What's your big takeaway from Galatians? You know, I'll just I'll say it this way. One of the verses that comes to my mind most often from Galatians is chapter five, verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free, stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. I find that very true in contemporary times is that sometimes I, you know, it's like what he said in Corinthians, everything is permissible, but I will not be enslaved by anything. The freedom we have in Christ, don't let that freedom lead me back into slavery. That, that's probably my biggest takeaway. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.